The following audio is from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com. I want to talk with you today about the times in life when we fall down. And I want to challenge you today to think of Christmas maybe a little differently than you've thought of it before. And to think of it as God helping us up when we fell down. And the hard thing for us, most of us, about that picture is the part of accepting that we have fallen down in different ways. And I want to challenge you as we look into God's Word today to maybe let down your guard a little bit between you and God, Uh, to maybe uh, open up your heart and, and be honest with yourself and invite God to show you the areas where you could use a hand. You could use a little help. I don't know if you remember a time that you've ever fallen or a time uh, that a loved one has fallen. I, I remember when I was about eight or nine years old, my family has these cabins up in Canada and they are uh, really, really remote. Uh, it, it's about a 45 minute drive from the closest town where there's not a uh, hospital or anything. And then that 45 minute drive is to the lake. Uh, but there's no roads around the lake. That's where you put your boat in and you go about half an hour by boat and then you get to the cabin. Well, one day uh, we were there, my dad, I have three older brothers and my mom, and we were all out hiking in the woods. So we're another, you know, 30, 40 minutes from the cabin. We were in the middle of nowhere. And I, I can say this, I think this was before cell phones. So do you see how, how old I am? I I lived before cell phones, or at least before they were very common. And uh, so, you know, it's the kind of place, I guess as a boy, you don't really think about getting hurt very often. But if we ever did, we really would have been in trouble because there was, you know, nowhere to go. It would have taken a long time. Well, we were out hiking in the woods, and, and my mom, who I love dearly, I'm a little bit of a mama's boy, she had stepped up onto this uh, fallen tree and she was stepping over it. We're hiking on this trail. Well, the tree was kind of rotten and it collapsed and my mom fell. And then she, she kind of rolled down this, this little hill about six feet. And I remember as an eight year old boy, just, just watching her. And do you know that feeling when you fall or when someone you love falls? And there's, and there's great fear. I remember just being so afraid. So scared and, and thankfully we got my mom picked up and we kind of dusted her off and she had some blood on her knee and we all went back to the cabin, but, but my mom was okay. Do you, do you remember that feeling in your life when you've fallen or someone you know has fallen? Here's what God tells us in his word today. Where you have fallen, God wants to pick you up. Where you have fallen, God wants to pick you up. Sometimes we fall physically like that. Other times we fall into a bad habit. Other times we fall into a season of depression. Maybe you've fallen into grief at times and you've cried those, those, those kind of heaving sobs of grief. We can fall emotionally. We can fall morally. Scripture says we all have fallen short of the glory of God. It says that all of us have sinned in one way or another. But again, we don't like to admit that, do we? 
We, we like the idea of Jesus coming to save the world, but, you know, coming to save me, I, I don't know if I need a savior, but that's the true message of Christmas, is that we have fallen and that God came to help us up. Sometimes we fall into failure. Maybe you've failed recently in a relationship. Maybe you failed at your workplace. Maybe you failed in some investments. In all these ways and so many more, God wants to help you up when you fall. In fact, did you know that in the Bible, God's love letter to us, that did you know that the Bible, not only is it uh, historically true as a set of ancient, ancient documents, and by the way, it's one of the most, it is the most historically corroborated ancient manuscript in the world. Uh, if you compare the number of copies we have of New Testament books to number of copies of Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey or other ancient texts, the numbers of copy that we have of Scripture that agree with each other, unbelievable. But God didn't just give you the Bible as a piece of literature. He gave it as a love letter to you. And did you know that in the very opening pages of this love letter of Scripture, God explains something called the fall? And not just the season of autumn when the leaves fall, but the fall of humanity. And maybe you've wondered before, you know, if God is loving and if God is good, then why is there so much pain in the world? Why is there divorce? Why is there death? Why is there war? Why do children go hungry? How could a, a good and loving God uh, create a world like this? Well, God answers that question right in the first pages of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 3, he explains that this, the world as we know it is not the world as he created it. We're not living in heaven. We're not living even in the Garden of Eden. The world he created was perfect. Uh, organic fruit, organic vegetables, no death, no, uh, no fighting, no selfishness, no pride, no greed, no murder no cancer. It was a perfect world. And God in love gave a choice to those first human beings, our great, 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 great ancestors. And they chose, they chose to turn their backs on God. They chose to, to believe the message of a deceiver who God calls Satan, or we know him sometimes as the devil. Uh, he's real. I don't think he has a pitchfork. Uh, he's, he's in the unseen realm. And he exists to destroy and to divide. And what God tells us in the opening pages of his love letter to us is that he came, he deceived Adam and Eve, and it set off this uh, spiritual chain reaction so that all of the world is infected by sin. As a result, we have death. As a result, we have sin, which makes me a selfish person makes me greedy, makes me angry. It has affected all of us. And as a result, we have wars. As a result, we have a world that has more than enough food and water for everyone, but millions of people who don't have food and water. More than enough medicine for everyone, but billions of people who don't have it. Why? Because sin has infected our human natures, and God calls this the fall. All have fallen short of the glory of God, the book of Romans tells us. A lot of times when I meet with people who have kind of, sometimes we say hit rock bottom. That is God, finally, God's got their attention. 
they've made a number of, of bad choices and their, maybe their marriage is just about to fall apart or did just fall apart or they have a, a kid who ran away or they lost a job and, and they realize, but, but, but even then we rarely say I've fallen. Usually what I hear is more of, uh, I'm stuck. And maybe that's how you feel today. Did you see those pictures in that video from Russia uh, of people who were stuck in the snow? And someone would come and push them out. I grew up in Michigan. We had snow all the time, like half of the year. And, uh, and I had this little front wheel drive Volkswagen for a while in high school. And, uh, and I had this friend that my buddy, I'd pick him up every morning on the way to school. And he lived back in this neighborhood where, uh, it was really shaded and the plows didn't get back there. And I knew when I went into his neighborhood, I had to keep my speed up. Uh, in fact, I'd kind of have to drift around the corners because if I wasn't going fast enough, the car was so low to the ground, it would just end up getting stuck. And then you have to get a bunch of guys and you have to push the thing out. Uh, maybe that's where you are today. Maybe you don't feel like, oh, it's not so dramatic that I've fallen or anything. But maybe are you a little bit stuck in your marriage are you a little bit stuck in your career? Are you stuck in your finances? Are you stuck in your life in general? God came to help us when we're stuck, to pick us up when we've fallen. But when we think of Christmas, there's a lot of pretty common stories, right? We got the shepherds leaving their sheep to go worship baby Messiah in the manger. Uh, we've got the wise men traveling from afar. We've got angry King Herod who's jealous that there's another king. But today I want to take you into a, a less common story from Jesus' life. It's a story that ties into his childhood because it's a story that takes place in the town where Jesus grew up. You know, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but then he grew up in a town called Nazareth. If you have a copy of God's Word, if you want to turn with me to Luke chapter 4, we're going to find Jesus returning to his hometown. Now, uh, maybe you can remember a time when, uh, if you grew up in a smaller town, that you went away to college or went away to work, and then you come back, uh, you, you go back to your hometown, and you realize, wow, I've changed, this place has not. I don't know if you know that feeling, I grew up in a smaller city, and every time I go back, that's, that's how I feel. It's, it's the exact same way that it was years and years ago uh, when I was growing up there. Well, I wonder if Jesus felt a little bit this way. Because here in Luke chapter 4, Jesus has just begun what's called his public ministry. Uh, John the Baptist, the greatest prophet of the time, has said, this is the Messiah. Jesus has started doing some miracles. He's well known all throughout the area. Word of mouth traveled in those days. It was the way people would get their news. And, and everyone knew Jesus of Nazareth is starting to heal blind people. He's starting to do miracles. He's a great prophet. He might even be the Messiah, the one sent by God to save us all. And let's begin reading in Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 14, about Jesus returning to this hometown. <clears throat> Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. And he stood up to read. 
Now, I'd like to describe for you, uh, based on, you know, studying first century culture, what synagogues were like, what, the, the way a town like Nazareth worked. I want to kind of tell you the story, paint the picture of what this probably looked like. You can start by picturing men with uh, long beards, kind of like Duck Dynasty guys, huh? But not wearing camo, okay? These guys would have been wearing long flowing robes. They would have been sitting around on benches. These would have been the elders and the Pharisees and the scribes of the town. And their benches kind of form a circle around a little platform where whoever the rabbi or the teacher is uh, would actually sit usually to deliver a message. Uh, the women from the community are there, and depending on the size of the synagogue, they are uh, segregated in some way. I'm sorry, it's just the way everything was in the first century, okay? Don't shoot the messenger, all right? And uh, but chances are they were up on a, a, an elevated balcony uh, looking, looking down. Everyone from the town, at least everyone who can fit in there, is packed into this room because it's the Sabbath, it's the Sabbath day, and, and, and for a Jewish town like this on the Sabbath day, no, nobody was out working on this day. Everybody's in here, and, and here comes Jesus, uh, who they probably called something like Yeshua. Uh, here's Jesus who they knew growing up. Here's Jesus, and there's people in the synagogue who maybe uh, babysat him when he was little. Here's people in the synagogue who, who sat in this synagogue and learned from a rabbi about the Torah, the law, alongside Jesus. These are his peers, his brothers and his sisters, his neighbors. This is a synagogue that he had sat in for years and years of his life. And now this same guy, Jesus of Nazareth, is growing famous throughout the region. Be like a high school classmate you had, uh, you know, winning American Idol or something. Um, but on a much more religious scale, of course, okay? So in recent months, word spreading. Th this is a great prophet. This may be Messiah. And now Jesus is home. So, so, you, so you can picture the scene. You can picture probably, um, you know, we'd call it candlelit, some kind of uh, fire that's lighting this little room. And there in the synagogue is a, a salaried employee whose full-time job was to care for the roles of Scripture, God's Word. This is pre-printing press, right? And the keeper of the scrolls hands to Jesus a scroll, and it happens to be the scroll of Isaiah. Isaiah, uh, the, the Old Testament book that has more prophecies about the Messiah than any other well, Jesus, you know, I, I picture him kind of rolling through the scroll, finding a spot, and he lands on Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, and he reads these words, The Spirit of the Lord is on me. Now, when Jesus said the Spirit of the Lord, his hearers, they probably would have thought of Samson. Uh, have you heard of Samson? He's the ancient Popeye, the ancient Incredible Hulk. You know, the guy could pick up castle doors. He could kill hundreds of people at a time. But it was because of the Spirit of God upon him that empowered him. So when Jesus says that the Spirit of the Lord is on me, it's not some kind of cute saying to these people. It's, it's a statement of power and of authority. Jesus continues reading, because 
he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Now, at this point, everyone knows this passage is about Messiah. They've been taught this. They've been looking for Messiah. And Jesus continues, He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus hands the scroll back to the attendant, sits down where a rabbi would sit to teach, and his teaching was very short. I wish I could get mine this short. Jesus says, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, let's understand what Jesus is saying, and then we're going to look at how the people responded, which is a, a kind of a unique twist in the story. Jesus was claiming that he was God sent to earth to pick us up from the fall, to heal all that's broken on every level, emotionally, physically, spiritually. He's predicting here that he would go to the cross and as Isaiah says, be led like a lamb to the slaughter and be silent. In other words, he'd be a sacrifice He would go to the cross to pay the penalty for my mistakes, to pay the penalty for your mistakes, so that if you trust in him, you don't have to. You see, real love lays down its life for another, and God laid down his life for you. Real love lays down its life for another, and God laid down his life for you. To claim, I'm going to fulfill these prophecies, well, I mean, it's one thing to claim it. It's another thing to go and prove it. Not only by taking the world's sins upon you, but then by rising from the dead as Jesus did. Jesus put it this way in John chapter 15, verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, than that a man lay down his life for his friends. It's one thing to say, I love you, right? And love has become a kind of a cheap word in our day and age. It's one thing to say it, but it's something else to show it. And that's why when I came across this video that we watched, that, that, that's what stuck out to me. It's, this is love in action. It's one thing to say you care about someone. It's something else to, to, to bring them some food when they're sick, to help them up when they fall down, to forgive them, to be patient with them. And, and love is actions, and the greatest love is self-sacrificing actions. The greatest love is a love that says, I will lay down my rights, I will lay down my life to help you. I heard the story of two close friends who served together during World War I. These two guys, they were inseparable. They enlisted together, they trained together, they shipped overseas together. And they often fought side by side in those trenches of World War I. If you, if you uh, need a refresher, you remember that, that the, the opposing sides would each have these trenches and in the middle was no man's land, full of barbed wire and landmines and it was often muddy. And if you ventured out there to, to try and get over to the enemy lines, you usually didn't make it across. Well, during an attack... One of the men was critically wounded, uh, stuck on a barbed wire out there 
in that no man's land. He's unable to crawl back into his trench. And the entire area where he was laying, dying, was just under a barrage of enemy fire. Everyone knew that to crawl out there and try and rescue him would be a suicide mission. And yet his friend who had known him for years, who he had enlisted with, his friend decided to try. Well, before his friend could get out of the trench, his sergeant grabbed him by the neck and, and yanked him back down. And he said, it's too late. You can't do him any good. You'll only get yourself killed. Well, a few minutes later, the sergeant turned his back and this friend scrambled out of the trench. A few minutes later, he staggers back and now he himself is mortally wounded, bleeding. And his friend who's now dead is in his arms. And the sergeant, angry and moved, blurts out, what a waste. He's dead and now you're dying. It wasn't worth it. With almost his last breath, the dying man replied, Oh, yes, it was worth it, Sarge. When I got to him, the only thing he said was, I knew you'd come, Jim. I knew you'd come. Have you ever had a, a friend like that? Have you ever had a spouse or someone who loves you who you know, you know that they'd rather die with you than live without you, that they'd give their life for you? Well, you, you do have a friend like that. The friend of, of sinners, the man of sorrows, the son of God, who, who left the comforts of heaven and came down into the slums of earth and, and took upon him the limited form of a human being so that he could die our death for us on the cross. So he could pay the, the price spiritually for our mistakes. He was condemned so we could be forgiven. He was rejected so we could be accepted. Well, let's pull out a few principles about Jesus' love for you from this one verse in Luke chapter 4, verse 18. Here's the first one. Jesus brings good news about the areas where I am inadequate. Are there some areas where you're inadequate, where you're insufficient, where you don't have enough? If there aren't, God says uh, that God resists the proud. The people who, who have no need for a savior, they never meet the savior. Not because he doesn't love them, but because they never acknowledge that they need him. But the same verse that says God resists the proud says, but he gives grace to the humble. Jesus put it this way, that he came to preach good news to the poor. What is it to be poor? It's to be without. It's to lack. It's to be inadequate. You need food and you don't have food. You need clothes and you don't have them. And Jesus says, I came to bring good news to everyone who will admit that they have a need. Here's the second thing that Jesus says. Jesus can set me free where I feel trapped. He says this in his prophecy that he reads from Isaiah 61. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. Where are you inadequate? And, and then where are you imprisoned? Uh, imprisoned 
by shame, perhaps, imprisoned by regret, imprisoned by worry. Jesus says, I've come to set you free. There's this old story from Life magazine in 1944 of this fox hunt in a county in Ohio. And all these, all these residents from the county, they'd all get together and they'd form a big circle. And, and I don't know how they did this, but there are pictures of it in Life magazine. Somehow it's a true story. They'd scare these foxes out of their holes. They make this big circle and they just keep closing in. And the foxes, if they try to escape, they beat them down. And eventually as they close in, you get in the middle, these foxes that are just whimpering and laying down and, and ready to die. And I thought, man, what a picture of life in this fallen world. You know, we start out young and we're running back and forth through the circle and we think we've got it figured out and we're strong enough and we're healthy enough. But some health problems come or some financial problems come or a marriage falls apart or the economy crashes or you lose an investment and you start to realize and then it just seems like life sometimes just keeps closing in on you. And Satan would love for you to think, well, that's God. God doesn't like you. God wants you to fall. God wants to destroy you. No, that is the fall. That's the fallen world that we're in. That's our enemy, the devil, who scripture says prowls about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And Jesus came down into that to say, I'll, I'll fight off your enemies. I'll set you free from that. All that's required is for you to humble yourself and say, God, I need a savior. He came to set captives free. Next, we see this, Jesus is seeking me to help me, even if I'm not seeking him. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind. Now, there are a number of blind men in scripture who Jesus heals and he restores their sight. But think about it. By the very fact that these people were blind, if Jesus hadn't sought them out, they probably never would have found him. And scripture says the same of us spiritually. That before we place our trust in Christ, that we're blind spiritually. We can't even see our, the depth of our need for a savior. The depth of our need for someone to pick us up. You hear stories sometimes of people who live in areas that have been tainted by uh, industry, industrial chemicals. There's this city in Illinois called McCollum Lake. And in McCollum Lake, there's, there's a number of people who have all gotten cancer. And, and uh, as they've done more research, they've realized there's this big factory and there's these chemicals that were going into the water. But these people, they didn't know it. They didn't know as they're living there and making their food and going about their work and getting a drink of water from the faucet that it was causing cancer for them. And what a picture that is of life in our fallen world. You know, we get so busy with our stuff and our success and our advancement and our relationships and our homes and our cars and everything else that we don't realize that, that we're contaminated. 
We're, we're, we're blind to it. And, and it's God's grace that opens our eyes to see, wow, I, I need a savior. In fact, scripture puts it this way in John chapter one. It says that, that the world was darkened by the fall and Jesus came down as the light of the world. But it says men didn't receive him because we'd, most of us would rather wander around in our darkness than get on our knees and admit we need some light. We need some help. We need a savior. Finally, we see this. Jesus can heal me and free me. Jesus reads this prophecy. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus talks about our poverty, our disability, our captivity. And he says, whether you feel oppressed, whether you feel broken and sick, whether you feel poor, I, I'm here with good news for you. Well, remember I told you the story has an incredible twist at the end? Well, Jesus, after he says, today this is fulfilled in your presence, he sits down and everyone's applauding him. This is just great. But then Jesus says a few more words, and I'm going to skip to the end of the story in verse 28 of Luke chapter 4. It says, all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, they drove him out of town, and they took him to the brow of a hill, in other words, to a cliff on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. And then verse 30, Jesus performs this miracle. Here's this mob of people. They grab him, they take him up to a cliff to throw him off, and he kind of just miraculously walks through him you know, does this kind of superhero thing where no one can grab him and he just walks on out. What would drive these people who grew up with Jesus to want to murder him? I mean, isn't this the baby Jesus of Christmas? Isn't this the baby in a manger? Didn't he come to, to die for the sins of the world? Isn't this joy to the world? Why, why does everyone he grew up with want to kill him? Well, it was, it was because Jesus essentially told them, you know, these claims about being here for blind people and poor people and prisoners and oppressed people, that's you. That's all of you. And today, because of our pride, very often we respond the same way. When, when we really hear the true message of why Jesus came. In Victor Hugo's classic, classic story, Lame is a Rob, if you've ever read it, you know, it's like this thick if it's not abridged. In Lame is a Rob, Jean Valjean is this, uh, this guy who essentially has been falsely accused. He's created this, this false identity and he's created a good life for himself. And there's this guy who essentially has a crush on his daughter named Marius. Marius has been a rebel. He's gotten himself into a whole lot of trouble. Uh, he actually was a, a rebel there in France resisting the government, and he ends up wounded in a battle. And Jean Valjean leaves his comfort, his wealth, his security, his identity, leaves everything to go and rescue this 
boy, Marius. And to do so, to get Marius to sneak him out of the battle, there's only one way, and it's to go through the sewers, the, the, the ancient sewers of, of France. And, and here's how Victor Hugo describes it. The sewer is the conscience of the city. All the uncleanness of civilization, once past its use, falls into this trench of truth. The blood stain of the palace, the ink blot of the cavern, the drop of sweat from the brothel, temptations welcomed, trials undergone, they all find their way to the sewer. And Victor Hugo, writing from a, a Christian worldview, takes his, his Christ-like hero into the stench and the filth of the sewer. To, to carry someone who's wounded and dying, to, to put him on his back, to wade through the mess of it, and to carry him out to life. That's a picture of Christ. That, that's why he was born on earth. Wasn't it a nice tourist destination for the almighty creator? You see, planet Earth that had once been the jewel of the galaxies, tainted by sin, has become spiritually the sewer of the universe. And it's into this darkness and filth that the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords stepped down in. And Almighty God came to, to carry you out of your mess, to carry me out of my mess by carrying our cross on his back. Contrast that, if you will, with the powerful rulers of our day, okay? I don't know if you've ever been at an airport and seen Air Force One through the window. I don't know if, uh, if you've ever been traveling through Europe and have seen uh, some of the royalty from a distance. It, 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 you can't really see them up close, right? Because of all the security. The, the powerful people of our day, they don't get out and just walk around with common people, no visits to the slums, no trips to the back alleys, they're never alone with a normal person. They might do a little photo shoot with all the secret service around, but they're not actually eating the same food. They're not standing in line at McDonald's. They're not taking their shoes and belts off and putting their computer in the tray at the airport, right? They're not mingling with unwashed hands. They're not pushing a shopping cart through Walmart. And they're certainly not being with the sick or with the hurting. Could you imagine, just imagine this for a moment, if every time President Obama flew to a city or every time Prince William and, and Kate went to a city, if every time the first place they went was the hospital, and then they'd mingle there and they'd you know, touch the, the MRSA-stained Handrails. And then from the hospital, here for the poor or the sick, from the hospital to the homeless shelter. We're also here for the poor. And from the homeless shelter, there's a third stop. It's the jails. I don't know if you've spent much time in jails. When I did my undergrad in South Carolina, every week I'd, I'd go to a jail where we would uh, essentially teach the Bible to the guys. 
you know, there's all these rumors about federal prisons having TVs and stuff. Well, it is not that way with county jails, okay? You do not want to go to a county jail. They're dirty. And they're not a safe place to be. Could you imagine having world leaders who every time they went somewhere, those were the three first places they went? Hospital, the homeless, and the jail. And that's what Jesus says in Luke 4.18. He says, I'm here on earth for those people. And, and you know what? When we, when we hear that, we can kind of give Jesus a nice little golf clap. Say, you know, bravo, Jesus. That's right. All those poor and sick and wicked people, they need you. You know, Jesus, do you have a 501c3? Because I could, I've got a little end of the year giving to do, Jesus. I'd love to support you in your mission to reach the really sick and the really poor and the really wicked. And, and as you're trying to write your check, Jesus looks you in the eye and he says, it's you. What, what do you mean, Jesus? Who do I write the check to? You're the poor one. You're the sick one. You're the one who needs a savior. See now why his friends wanted to throw him off a cliff? It's an affront to our pride, isn't it? Here's the biggest thing I, I want you to leave with today. Jesus saves those who admit their need and believe in his power. Remember John chapter one, that picture of earth being darkened by the fall. Jesus comes in as this burst of light. And John says, yet to all who did receive him, so many rejected him. They were just blinded by his holiness. They couldn't accept the fact that they need a savior. But to all who did receive him, to those who would be humble enough to say, yeah, that's me. I need a savior. To those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become Children of God. And if you don't know today that you are a child of God, not as a trite saying, but that your identity in the universe, your spiritual identity is that you've been adopted into the family of God. If you don't know that today, then all you have to do is receive him and believe in his name. All you have to do is be humble enough to kneel before him and say, I do need a savior. I love stories of rescue. And my favorite one is the one of those miners in, in Chile who a few years ago, they were trapped three miles under the earth. And finally, uh, with an international effort, they drill down to them and this rescue tube comes down. And think about that moment for those 33 miners who had been trapped there for 60 some days. Here comes this rescue tube. They have a choice to make. Are you going to step in to the rescue tube and be pulled up through the earth to the surface or not? It's your choice. No one's going to make it for you. And in the same way, Jesus came down into this earth, created a way of rescue. And today he says, it's your choice. Will you believe in me? Will you trust in me? Will you admit that you can't save yourself? 
If that's you, God says this in Romans 10, verse nine, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus, you are Lord. In other words, Jesus, I do believe you're God. And if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, okay, not only are you God, you paid the penalty of my sins on the cross. You rose from the dead, proving that you're bigger than death. You're bigger than my sin. God promises you, you will be saved. Would you bow your heads and let's, let's pray together as we close today. Father, I thank you that right now you are giving grace to us to see our need for a savior. Lord, right now there are some in this room who right now you've got their attention and, and this is the moment that could change their eternity. If right now, they'll humble themselves before you. And, and if you're here right now and that's you, I just, I wanna take you by the hand spiritually. I wanna, I, I wanna walk with you to the foot of the cross. Jesus says, if you, if you receive me, if you believe in my name, you'll be adopted into the family of God. And right now, if that's you, you, you can pray from your heart along these lines. If you can pray it out loud if you want as I pray it, or you can pray it in your heart and say, say, Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. Lord, I know there's areas where I'm captive and I need to be set free. There's areas where I'm blind and I need to see. There's areas where I'm poor and I need you to provide for me. Jesus, today I'm trusting in you as my savior. Thank you for coming as a light into this dark world. Lord, come as a light into the darkness of my life. If you've prayed that today for the first time, God says you're adopted into his family, you're freed from sin. And we're here at Cornerstone to just help you live in this newness of life, new life. Many of us are here and we've placed our faith in Christ in the past, but you know, life goes along and we get a little cocky and we forget that we need a savior. If that's you today, would you join me in, in reminding ourselves, Jesus, I have no good thing apart from you. Without you, I was poor, I was enslaved and you have set me free. Thank you, Lord. We celebrate Christmas by celebrating that. Lord, as we go from here today, would all of us know that we belong to you, that we are your beloved, that our, our sins are separated as far as the east is from the west, that though they were as scarlet, you've washed them white as snow. And Lord, as we go from here, would you make us little Christs that we'd pick up the people around us who've fallen down, that we'd dust them off, that we'd help them, that we'd strengthen them, that we'd Give them a little push when they're stuck. Use us to show your love to this world, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.